0: Good morning, church. Good to see you. Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians chapter 13. We are in a series called We Believe, which, as Bert said, is a study through our statement of faith. And today we are going to consider and celebrate the doctrine of the Trinity that our God is is one in nature, three in person. So if you're taking notes, the sermon title today is Our Triune God. Our Triune God. I wonder if you've ever seen um, a magician do some magic tricks. Maybe some of you kids have seen a magician pull a a quarter from someone's ear or uh, guess the card that you picked out of a stack of cards uh, you see him do this trick, and you wonder, how did he do that? How did he pull that off? Uh, I remember growing up watching David Copperfield's uh, um, TV specials. Uh, He—I remember watching him. Actually, showed my kids this week a video of him, uh, you know, being cut in half, and uh, and and so I had to explain to Caleb that we don't do this at home. <laughs> This is, this is what he does because he's special <laughs> and a specialist. Uh, we do not try this at home. I remember seeing him levitate. But David Copperfield is famous for his, re- his really big over-the-top illusion. So he made an airplane disappear in front of a live audience. He walked through the Great Wall of China. He chained himself to a burning raft that was then pushed over the edge of Niagara Falls. And uh, he made the whole statue of Liberty disappear once in front of a live audience. And now all of this is on live TV and and no cuts of the camera, no special effects. you know that was always the promise and And so I remember thinking, "I know this isn't real. i don't I don't think that this is real, but how does he do all this? This is amazing. How does he do this without cutting away the camera, doing special effects or something like that. And, And maybe some of you are smart to figure it out, but I know there's no way I would ever figure this out unless he were to tell me the secrets of his trade. Unless he were to tell me the mysteries. Well, the word mystery and secret in the Bible means something kind of like that. They're not exactly parallel, but they essentially mean That there are divine secrets, there are divine mysteries that we would never understand. We'd probably never even be able to think of them on our own unless God revealed them to us. Unless He opened our eyes and our minds to see them. Not fully, we don't ever understand them in full, but we understand them truly. That they are there and they are real. Like, for instance, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God becoming a man. How's, how does God, how does Jesus be 100% God and 100% man? I don't know. It's a mystery, but it's true. Another is the inspiration of Scripture, which we spoke about last week. How does God carry along the, Holy, the prophets by His Holy Spirit? We don't exactly understand how He did it, but we know that He did it. The Bible is filled with great mysteries that God only partially pulls back the curtain for us to see into, enough so that we can see that they are there and to see some things true about them, but not enough for us to understand them fully. And the greatest mystery of them all, the mystery of all mysteries in Scripture, is what we are told of the very nature of God, that He is one in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So on the one hand, Scripture strongly affirms the oneness of God. This is taught from the very first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God, singular, one God. From the very start, Scripture declares there's one God who created everything. Everything. The oneness of God is affirmed all throughout Scripture, but maybe no more famously than in Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, the great Shema. Hear, O O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So, on the one hand, the Bible strongly affirms the oneness of God, but then on the other hand, it also affirms the full deity of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit. so Philippians one two, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. So the Father is fully God. Titus two thirteen, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So the Son, Jesus is fully God. and Acts five, three and four. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back from yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold? Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So he lied to the Holy Spirit, which was a lie to God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. We could look at many other passages, uh, but the clear teaching of Scripture is that on the one hand, there is one God, but on the other hand, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each fully God. And these are not three different ways of looking at God, or three different roles that He plays, because the Bible also teaches that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three distinct persons. For example, we're told that the Father sent the Son into the world, John 3.16. Well, if the Father is sending the Son, then He cannot be sending Himself. He's not sending the same person. You know, he's not like, okay, Son, go. Okay, I'm going. You know, like This is not God switching roles here. This is God sending His Son. And then the Father, we're told, and the Son, uh, send forth the Spirit. So again, the Holy Spirit must be distinct from the Father and the Son. So it is the clear, albeit confusing, teaching of Scripture that there is one God in three persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or to fill it out a bit more, we agree with the Belgic Confession where it says, In keeping with this truth and the Word of God, we believe in one God who in is one single essence in whom there are three persons really, truly, and eternally distinct according to their incommunicable properties, namely Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the doctrine of the Trinity, which is a theological term. So you can't look up Trinity in the back of your Bible in your concordance and, and try to find it. It's not in the Bible, just like incarnation is not or inerrancy is not. These are theological words used to summarize truths, doctrines in Scripture. And so the word Trinity is the English equivalent of the Latin word Trinitas, uh, which was first coined by a theologian in 213 AD. So we've had it for a really long time. And the word means something like the tripleness or we would say the threeness, referring collectively to God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity is Christianity's most unique, defining, incomprehensible, and awesome mystery. But I fear... That it can feel more like a complex math problem that we will never understand than a great doctrine that is the foundation of our faith. Uh, a historic formula for teaching on the Trinity refers to in the Trinity or with the Trinity, there are five notions, four relations, three persons, two presences, one essence, Five, four, three, two. It's like, why does it all have to do with numbers? My kids have a joke that they like to tell um, to us over and over and over and over and over again, but also to guests who come to our house. this is like one of the ha- and the magic tricks they pull out of you know for the for our guests, the little shows there. What's one plus one plus one? Now, if you say three they say, no, it's one, the Trinity. And then if you try to get smart and say, one, they say, no, it's three, the Trinity. These are the kind of jokes you tell in a pastor's home. I remember taking pre-calculus in high school and thinking to myself, when am I ever going to use this? I, and some of you probably get calculus really well and do use it, praise the Lord, but when, am, but when am I going to use this? And I wonder if you feel like that, studying the Trinity. Like, okay, this is important. The Bible teaches it. All Orthodox Christians believe it. It's fundamental to our faith. It's about God, so I guess it's important. But I mean, like, really, when, how, why does this matter? how do I use this? While it's true that studying the Trinity can feel, at least to me, like doing calculus or algebra or something like that, some kind of advanced mathematics, the reality is the Trinity is more like the numbers and the logic that all of math is built upon. That's how the Trinity works for our faith. The Trinity is Foundational for making our faith comprehensive or comprehensible, uh, reasonable. So here's where we're going to go in our study today. I first want to ground us in 2 Corinthians. 13 verse 14. This is going to be kind of our base. We'll keep coming back to that for reference. But from there, I want to dive into, as much as God will help us, the very nature of the Trinity, to see why the triuneness of God is actually the foundation of our faith. Everything we believe is built on the Trinity. But I want to begin by just grounding us in this verse, so please follow along. It was actually quoted in our covenant, but let's go ahead and read it. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 14. This is what Holy Scripture says. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. May the Lord bless now the preaching and the believing of His Word. All right. If you want to study more more on the proofs of the Holy or of the Trinity, let me just say this: I come in to you first and foremost just the footnotes in uh, your statement of faith that we gave out. Uh, there are some great passages you can just look them up and study more about that. Or you can pick up uh, Wayne Grudem's Bible Doctrine back there, a great help to you. If you want to dive into the nature of how these doctrines of the, the Trinity relate and matter to us, some books I would recommend uh, one would be Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves, uh, which is a fantastic book. Uh, Also, I don't have my copy of this one, but um, Fred Sanders' book, The Deep Things of God, uh, which we might have back in the bookstore, Uh, The Deep Things of God by Fred Sanders, or the hardest but possibly most rewarding one of them all, John Owen's classic, Communion with God. Uh, communion with God. Each of these are excellent, and most of what I'm teaching today I've learned from these men. So let's dive in. Our verse is obviously Trinitarian. It's one of the most obviously Trinitarian passages in Scripture, and I want to use three key words in this verse to structure our thoughts today. So three words. Of course, this is a Trinitarian uh, passage and a Trinitarian. Sermon, so there's going to be a Trinitarian structure. Three points for you, not surprising, but the key words are not going to be Father, Son, and Spirit. They are going to be love, grace, and fellowship. So, point number one the love of the Trinity is the fountain of all love. The love of the Trinity is the fountain of all love. God's love is one of the major themes in Scripture. Uh, Probably the best. Known Bible verse is what? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever, whoever believes in him, should not perish but have eternal life. The Bible talks a lot about God's love, and that's because it is a part of his very nature. He is love. So 1 John 4.16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Love, love is one of God's essential attributes. Now, from there, let me ask this interesting question for you to ponder. I'm going to ask you a lot of questions for your pondering today, okay? So, let me ask you this question. What was God doing before he created everything? What was God doing before he created everything. Psalm 90 verse 2 tells us, before the mountains were brought forth or ever, uh, you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So another way of translating that is from vanishing point to vanishing point, you are God. The mind turns backward in time till the dim past vanishes. Then it turns and looks as far into the future again until it vanishes. And still there is God. From vanishing to vanishing point and beyond, He is God. Theologians call this the eternality of God. He is the one who is high and lifted up. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen says, "Who inhabits eternity." His home is in eternity, and whose name is holy. He is not just older than the universe. God never had a beginning. Scripture tells us God is worshiped in heaven. We sang it this this morning because he is and was and ever will be. In fact, when the Bible uses time words, uh, they are always references for us For us, it's always referring to our time, our reference to time, not to God's, because God is is really outside of time, or it might be better to say, time dwells in God. All our yesterdays and all our tomorrows are ever present before Him, always. So, this is something for you to ponder about. It'll make your brain hurt. I was talking to my kids about this week, and they said, Dad, I don't like this. It's too much. (laughs) And it is. But using time words, because we are in time, the question is, what was God doing before time, before he created everything? Well, one of the things he was doing, one of the incredible things he was doing, is told to us in John 17, verse 24. In this passage, Jesus is praying to the Father, and he gives us a window straight back into eternity past, a kind of a peek into what God was doing before he created the world. Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So what was, what was God doing before the foundation of the world, before he created everything? He was loving the Son for all eternity. God has been a father loving His Son. If you approach the Trinity through the revelation that Jesus brings, God is shown to us to be an eternally loving Father. And this is so significant. The most fundamental thing Jesus teaches us about God is not some abstract quality about Him, God's eternality, for instance, we were just talking about, but is the fact that God is Father eternally. He always has been. So think about this with me. Follow me here. If God existed, well, now, let me just make it as a premise. God existed before he created everything. Before he created everything, God was doing what? Loving his son. This means that before God was ever a creator or a ruler, he was a father loving his son. Before he created anything, before God was creator or ruler, he was a father loving his son, which means all his ways are fatherly. It's not that God is like a father. No, fathers, at their best, are like God. He is a father all the way down, or you might say all the way back. Thus, all that God does, he does as a father. John Calvin brings attention to this in his Institutes of the Christian Religion when he writes, we ought in the very order of things in creation, he's talking about, diligently to contemplate God's fatherly love. For as a foreseen and diligent father of the family, he shows his wonderful goodness toward us. To conclude, once for all, whenever we call God the creator of heaven and earth, let us at the same time bear in mind that we are indeed his children, whom he has raised or received into his faithful protection to nourish and educate. It's a profound sight, insight that God is first a father and thus his ruling of creation is as a kind of loving and goodly father. I think it's easy for us to think of God as, as a high, higher power. Right? That's, how, that's how people might think about God. Uh, agnostics might, you know, he's a higher power. And Christians, we would not say that exactly, but it, it may be the default way we feel about God. He is all-powerful. He is the sovereign one. He's ruling over all things. He's ordering all things to appointed, they're appointed in, um, and so he can feel like some autocrat in the sky. And maybe his ways are just, and maybe they are right. But then maybe that's all he really cares about getting things done His way, getting things done orderly, getting things done right. But do you see the profound difference it makes of God being eternally a Father? That all His ways are not just hard rules and cold logic and moral and natural order. No, all His ways are fatherly. He establishes all of this out of care and concern for us with good intent and the intent of giving life. This is what it means to be a father, right? To be a father is to give life, to beget, to be the giver of yourself. This is who God has always been. He's always been giving love to his son. He's always been from eternity. He has been giving away his care, his delight, And doesn't that make him a God worth delighting in, an autocrat in the sky we would maybe submit to or perhaps we would honor, but a heavenly father? He is one in whom we can take refuge in and one whom we can unburden our hearts to and one whom we can count on for care and for guidance. He is the one in whose we delight in his delight. This gets unpacked for us further in 1 John chapter 4. Uh, First John chapter four, you can look with me on the overhead. In verses seven and eight, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because, here he says it again, God is love. There it is, God is love, and to know God is to know love. Now, look at verse nine, he says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. So the God who is love, the Father who sends His one and only Son, He sends Him to manifest His love to us because this is who God is. This is His very nature. This is His very essence. He is the fountain of all love. He is the source of love. He is its wellspring. Love is not a mood that God gets into. God is love. Always loving the Son. God is love. He is the self-giving, life-giving, ever-begetting Father. He is the fountain of all love. And the only reason God shows love to you and me isn't because of anything we do or we don't do, but it's all wrapped up in the fact that this is who He is. Is you see, friends, it's not it's not just Jesus's death in our place that is unique about Christianity. Other religions believe in substitutionary atonements of a sort, different than ours, and yet similar in some fashion. What remains unique about Christianity is that it all flows out of the very nature of who God is. It's His character. It's His person. We don't just love a God who did this to save us, we love a God who is this, actually loving, the fountain of all love. And because of that, he will do anything for us. So it is the love of the Trinity that is the fountain of all love. Point number two then, point number two, continuing on, the grace of the Trinity is the source of our salvation. The grace of the Trinity is the source of our salvation. Into our passage again, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. All right, let's talk about grace. I want to take you back in time again, back in time before the beginning. I have another question for you to think about, another question for you to ponder. Why did God create everything? Why did God create everything? This is one of the most profound questions to ponder. I mean, why? Why bother? Why bother with you? Why bother with me? Why bother making this world? Why? Well, to answer that, let's, let's use a little imagination, I think is informed by God's Word, and then we'll go into God's Word and ground it all there. So let me ask you to imagine, let me ask you to imagine for a moment a single-person God. single-person God. We believe in a three-person God. But imagine with me for a minute, a single-person God. If I were to ask you, what do you imagine He's like? You were to try to think up the perfect, the best you can, single-person God. what, What do you think He'd be like? Lonely. Or at least we could definitely say, alone. 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 And so, if he were alone, completely alone, this means love for others could not be his essence. Because he had never loved for eternity past another. Now, you could say, well, he becomes loving once he has another to love. Fine, but you still can't say that he is love because he is not been loving, has not been loving for eternity past. So you see, the only with the triune God can you say that God is love, because only he has been always loving. Now, from this, it's interesting to know that all the other gods of other religions, all throughout history, have always in fact been needy gods. They create because they need something. They need servants, or they need entertainment. They need playthings with us. They need uh, company because they're lonely. They all come across as very powerful, but actually very needy. In fact, it would be offensive to say this, but the reality is, uh, the glory of these gods is something more like a black hole. Because they always need Whereas the glory of the triune God is that he does not need, he has always been fulfilled in himself, fully loving and enjoying, delighting in himself. Which means he's always giving of himself to himself and out of this he is always generous, he is never needy. So to offend your pride here for a moment, let's just be clear, God does not need you. God does not need you. Let me say this to teenagers one more time. It might be harder for you. God does not need you. Now, we can be offended by it. I mean, mean, yeah, I know He doesn't need me, but maybe just a little bit. Just a little bit here. No, but this is actually really good news that He does not need us because it means our God always relates to us, not out of need, but out of pure love, out of pure giving. Out of pure grace, not neediness, but overflowing kindness. Now, let me show you from Scripture how this all relates to our salvation. Let me ground some of what I've been saying into the Bible here. So, we're going to look at Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, we're going to be there for a few minutes. You can turn there if you want. I'm also going to have it on the overhead because I've marked things in this passage. I want you to see that I'm seeing. So, Ephesians 1... And let me just tell you ahead of time, uh, I'll give you ahead of time, where am I going to go in this passage? Here's what I want to show you. I want to show you that the grace that saves us in Christ Jesus flows from the love in the Trinity. I'll say that again. The grace that saves us in Christ Jesus flows from the love in the Trinity. So this is some some really deep waters we're going to wade out into here, and so the Lord, please help us, God, we need help, because... Um, This is a whole sermon in itself, uh, but but I love Ephesians 1. So let's look at Ephesians 1, and I'm gonna read to begin with verses uh, the end of verse 4 through verse 7. So just a little slice of this glorious theological pie that is Ephesians 1. Let's look at verse 4 through 7. In love, okay, pause. There's gonna be a lot of pauses here, so just follow along with me, okay? So in love, this is the great motive of salvation. It is the love of God. In fact, I love how John Murray says it. He says, no treatment of the atonement can be properly oriented that does not trace its source to the free and sovereign love of God. So that's true. That's what we see right here in Scripture. Salvation flows out of the love of God. All right, back into our passage. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus, through Jesus Christ. According to. The purpose of His will. All right, so that's the deepest root of where our salvation came from. It's not according to our will. It's according to the purpose of God's will. So, to the purpose of God's will, verse 6, "...to the praise of His glorious grace, which with which He has blessed us in the Beloved." All right, we're going to come back to that in the beloved here in just a minute. That's Christ, but we'll come back to that. But note, the deepest root of where our salvation comes from is the purpose of God's will. We saw that in verse 5. And the deepest purpose for which we are saved, and really it's the deepest purpose for why God created anything and everything, it's all to the praise of His glorious grace. So if you want to know the purpose of your life, If you don't know the purpose of creation, if you don't know the purpose of history, it's all right here. It's to the praise of the glory of God's grace. This is why God made everything. This is why God ultimately saves us. And then Paul wants to unpack what this grace looks like in verse 7. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And then Paul adds this very significant, very purposeful and pregnant statement according to the riches of his grace. All right, so according to Paul here, salvation is, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, and then verse 7, according to the riches of his grace. So Paul is highlighting for us, he's underlining, just like I'm trying to for you, the significance of grace in our salvation. You follow all that? All right, now, just for the fun of it, let's skip down to chapter 2, because I want to see show you how, at, at the bottom of all Paul's thinking, is God's grace in our salvation. So chapter 2, verses 4-7, through But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Alright, so here we have it. In fact, here we have... Mercy, love, and grace. You see all the, it's another three. Trinity, see what's going on here? Mercy, love, and grace. This is how I put these, two, or these three together. Love is the big idea. Love is the big concept. Mercy is, ex, is its expression to brokenness, to weakness, to hurting. Well, grace is its expression to uh, guilt, to undeserving. So God with great love Rich in mercy toward us in our brokenness and rich in grace to us in our undeservedness. Let's keep reading. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that, here's the goal, here's the purpose. Now follow this. In the coming, what? One age? Every age. This is eternal. Notice the pearl, the coming ages. In other words, it is going to take an eternity to do this in a fitting way. What? What? What's going to take eternity, Paul? He might show, that's the key word, display, show, what? What's he going to show? The immeasurable riches of his grace. So the whole goal of God's great love coming to us in rich mercy and rich grace through raising us with Christ is that so forever He can show forth the immeasurableness. That's why it's going to take forever because it's immeasurable to show forth the immeasurable, the infinite, the endless riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, Do you see how similar all this is in chapter 2 to what we just read in chapter 1? Particularly what verse 7 says and what verse 6 says. It's all to the praise of his glorious grace and it's all to show the immeasurable riches of his grace. So for Paul, this is it. This is the bottom of the bucket. This is as deep as it goes. And this is such good news because... There's immeasurable riches of grace, which means we can never exhaust it. Never exhaust it. We can never, you, this is why we say this, you can never outsin God's grace. You can't do it. It's immeasurable. It takes all of eternity to showcase how much there is. So you're never going to get to the bottom of it. This is why Paul says in Romans 5:20 where sin abounds, <laughs> grace superabounds. Grace abounds all the more so. And this is why there is now no no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because there is always more grace in God than there is sin in you. And this is why you can never be separated from the love of Christ because grace will never let you go. You can't Get to the end of it. You can't run it out. It's immeasurable. It's infinite. It's endless. And that's the purpose of our salvation. It's to pl- praise the immeasurable riches of his glorious grace. And so if God could lose you, if you could out God, it, it wouldn't be so glorious anymore. It wouldn't be so immeasurable. It would be measurable. Yeah, it's about as much as you. It's about as much as you. And a little less. That's not so great, God. But well, what about if it can cover all of you? And what if it can cover all of us? And what if it's enough for the whole world? plus infinity? Now, okay. So that's grace, and we preach grace, right? But I'm supposed to be trying to connect all this to the Trinity. Jace, I thought this was a sermon about the Trinity. Sounds like a sermon about grace. Okay, great. Now, let me return us for a moment to Ephesians 1, because I said I wanted to show you that the grace that saves us, this immeasurable grace in Christ Jesus, flows from the love of the Trinity. So let me show you this by taking you back to Ephesians 1, verse 6. Paul writes, To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us, what? In the Beloved. Now, friends, right there, that's Trinitarian language. Who is the beloved? He's the beloved what? This is my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is God's beloved son. He receives, okay, follow me here. He receives all the perfect and full love of God the unceasing, unending, immeasurable love of the Father for His Son. And Paul is saying, we were predestined, we were chosen, we were elected to be saved, to be blessed in Him. Blessed in the Beloved. We are blessed in the One who is so deeply and perfectly loved by the Father. So this is what Paul is saying in verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. Paul is saying, listen, you were chosen in Christ. And so the immeasurable riches of God's grace is Him pulling from the great storehouse of His love for the Son and saying, You can't outsend me because I love you as much as I love my Son with all the perfect love that I have. Listen, the great storehouse, the riches of God's grace, it's not like Scrooge McDuck with his money bin. You remember that cartoon? Scrooge McDuck with his money bin, and, and he would jump into his money and swim around in the coins and the gold and all just stuff, and there was just like, it was like floors high. And I think we think about God's grace like that. Like, wow, I mean, does anyone have as much grace as God does? I mean, he's got this huge storehouse. He just swims around in it, and he wants me to swim around in it. But as if it's a lot, but there's only so much. It's more than we can imagine, but there's only so much. But that is not what the Trinitarian understanding of love teaches. It's saying that he loves his son fully, infinitely, perfectly, endlessly, because God is love. And so it is out of His very essence, His very nature, His very perfect and full love for His Son that He draws up all the grace and the love and the help that you and I need. That is how the grace, the riches of the grace of the Trinity flow into our salvation. Does that make sense? It's incredible. It's all grounded in the person and the nature of God okay my goodness we still have another point to do the fellowship of the trinity is the privilege of every christian point number three the fellowship of the trinity is the privilege of every christian with all these listen you remember uh, when paul says to timothy consider these things and the lord will give you understanding i've always thought that must have been really frustrating for timothy like well paul can't you just explain it to me just take a few more lines and write it out uh, but but Paul's like, now, nah, just think about it and uh, the Lord will give you understanding. I feel like in some ways that's what we're doing today. It's like, well, okay, these are things for us to consider. May the Lord give us understanding. 2 Corinthians 13, 14 again. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Here Paul commends the fellowship of the Holy Spirit because it's primarily through the, the Spirit that we enjoy fellowship with the Trinity. So, uh, we're, I want to look at Romans 8. In fact, turn there with me if, if you have that for a minute. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Uh, Paul, or I mean, uh, Bert used this in the call to worship today. Uh, we're going to look at the same, one, two of the same verses. Romans chapter 8. I'm using the ESV. Some of your translations, if you use the different, one, may use the word children instead of sons, but it literally is sons, and there's a purpose behind that. So, just... Follow along with me here Romans chapter 8 and we're going to look at verses 14 and 15. Romans 8:14 and 15, Paul writes, "For let's just look at verse 14 first. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God." Now, this is what that might sound misogynistic to some, but what Paul's deliberately saying here is that all who are led by the Spirit, men and women, are sons of God. And he wants us to be clear that the status we are all given is the status of son of the Son, of the Son, Jesus Christ. That's what we're given in the Gospel. More than we're forgiven, we are adopted as sons in the Son. Now, men have to make peace with the fact that we are the bride of Christ, right? So, Women have to make peace with the fact that they're sons of God. These are just theological constructs we have to work with here that the Lord gives us. We've all got issues we've got to work through. Men get to enjoy with women that we are the bride of Christ that is loved by him. And ladies get to enjoy with men the status of the beloved son himself. Loved just as much as Jesus is, as hard as that is to imagine. So much so, Paul goes on in verse 15 to say, For, this is so amazing. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by who we cry, Abba, Father. Now, what's I think startling, startlingly beautiful in this passage is Paul does something really strange right here. You you might catch what it is. This whole letter is written in Greek. Everything is Greek in this. It's all Greek to me. This This letter is written, Romans is written in Greek, except for one word, Abba. This Aramaic word that he includes, and it's a really odd thing, but it's supposed to be a direct hyperlink back to Mark 14 when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is really important. What was happening there? Jesus is in private fellowship with his Father. Personal communion. And what does Jesus call him? Abba, Father. And so Paul is saying in Romans 8, the spirit of adoption, or the spirit of his son, as he's called in Galatians 4, 6, is given to us so that we might share not just the same language, but the same personal intimacy and fellowship with God that Jesus himself shares with his Father. We are given precisely nothing less than what Jesus enjoys Isn't that amazing And that's why we don't want Listen this is why you this is where you plug all the spirit references in scripture to right here This is why you don't want to quench the spirit Because then you don't hear him crying out inside of you and with your spirit Abba You quench communion with the fellowship of the Trinity. But this is instead why we want to be led by the Spirit and filled by the Holy Spirit. Because more of Him equals more of the Lord, more and deeper and richer fellowship with the Godhead. If God were a single person God, a creator and ruler, he might possibly offer us a salvation where we could live under his protection. And maybe he'd offer us some kind of forgiveness, but he could never offer us the kind of loving intimacy and close communion that the triune God can offer, bringing us into the very fellowship that the Godhead has enjoyed for all eternity. Listen to Jesus' prayer for us in John 17, verse 23. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Friends, with no other religion in the world do you get that? Father, you loved them even as you loved me. It's only with the triune God that we can say with all sincerity, our Father. I'm reminded here of Deuteronomy 29.29, 29, right? The secret things belong to God, but the, things that are, the secrets that are revealed to us are for us, and for our children, that we may obey the law. It is revealed for us that we might walk in these ways. So let me just conclude, let me conclude with just this wonderful statement about our relationship with God that's found near the end of C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. He writes, In Christianity, And I don't have it on the overhead, so you just got to listen. Christianity, God is not a static thing, not even a person, but a dynamic, pulsing activity, a life, almost a kind of drama. Almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-personal life is to be played out in each one of us or putting it the other way around. Each one of us has got to enter that pattern. Take his place in that dance. There is no other way to the happiness for which we were made. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, You must get close to, even into, the thing that has them. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty, spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. I think about the trip my family and I took to Niagara Falls a couple years ago, and it's an awesome sight if you've been there, 3,160 tons of water just flowing over the edge of the falls every single second. It's an awesome sight. And all the more, if you take that maid of the mist ship, that one that brings you right up under the falls, feel the power just beating down in front of you. But if you're going to do that, you got to be willing to get soaked to the bone to that close to the water. And I read that quote from Lewis, and I think about that experience of Niagara Falls, and I think that's exactly it. If we want the love and the joy and the peace, if we want the patience and the power and the holiness, then we have to get close enough to the one who has it and is it, our triune God. And this is the privilege of every Christian, Male or female, young or old, mature or immature, we have sonship status. The spirit of adoption, fellowship with the Trinity, grace upon grace, the love of God upon us. This is what we were saved for, and really, this is what we were saved into. So, the invitation is draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, these are weighty but wonderful truths we've explored today. Your word is just amazing. God, thank you for pulling back the veil so that we can see a little glimpse into you. I'm in humility, Lord, we just we admit there are secret things that belong to you that you've not revealed to us. We, we cannot comprehend all of it. Our minds hurt when we try to think about eternity past and eternity future. Uh, we can't do the math of the Trinity, Lord. We, there are things beyond us. We don't understand how you can have no beginning. We don't get these things, Lord. We receive them by faith. But the secret things you have revealed to They are ours. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to go as far as the light that you have given us. No further, but that far. And in so doing, fill us with the wonder that you are. And fill us with the worship that you deserve. I pray that you would ground us in the great truth that you are one God in three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Praise in your name, Jesus. Amen.